Hello and welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast with a close look at the top news and views of the day worldwide. I'm Narayan Lakshman, associate editor at the Hindu and I'm very pleased to have as my guest for today Professor Thomas Piketty, professor of economics at the Paris-based School of Advanced Studies in the Social Sciences and at the Paris School of Economics and co-director at the World Inequality Lab and World Inequality Database. If the catastrophic human toll of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic was the first wave to strike the world this year, its severe economic consequences, including loss of incomes and livelihoods for the poor across countries, leading to massive internal displacement and starvation in many cases, have been the second wave. It is in this context that the extensive and seminal work of Professor Piketty on the phenomenon of economic inequality and its political and historical antecedents uh, gains additional significance today, and his perspective is especially valuable for his study of inequality in India as well. Professor Piketty will also be speaking to us today about the ideas in his latest book uh, on capital and ideology, and he will give us hopefully some deep insights into the landscape of inequality and what policy options there are to mitigate its debilitating effects, as well as the ideological underpinnings of these effects. Welcome to this podcast. Uh, Professor, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Frank. Uh, so before jumping into any analysis of the current scenario, let's start with a fascinating idea that you explore in, uh, in Capital and Ideology, uh, the notion of participatory socialism. Could you talk a bit about what it is and how, if at all, you see it as an essential step to redress the ills of free market capitalism and globalization, which has now overtaken almost every nation on earth. The, the basic idea of participatory socialism, in my view, is to have you know, everyone uh, the power to participate to the economy. So this means access to private property. So I, I believe in private property. You know, I don't want state property or state communism, but I want everybody to be able to access to a private property, which requires a more progressive tax system in order to reduce taxation on the poorest group in societies and, and possibly to pay for an endowment, an inheritance for all that, you know, everybody at least will receive uh, something, you know, because we say we believe in equal opportunity, but in fact, we live in a world where, you know, the bottom 50% of the population uh, does not receive any uh, wealth, any inherited wealth from their parents, whereas some other people receive millions or billions, so that's one thing. And, and the other dimension of participatory socialism is that workers should be able to participate more in the governance of their companies, whether or not they have a share in the capital. And, and so just to take an example of something that, that has been done already for a long time in a number of countries, including, you know, pretty successful countries like Sweden or Germany, since the 1950s in Germany, uh, workers' representatives have up to 50% of voting rights in the boards of the largest corporation. And, uh, you know, of course, initially shareholders uh, did not like this, uh, in Germany or in Sweden when it was set up, but uh, 70 years later, you know, nobody is questioning this and everybody feels that this has been a way 
to get more uh, involvement by workers in the long-term strategy of, of uh, the companies. And, you know, now there's a lot of discussion uh, in, in, in the US, in Britain, in my country, in France, where shareholders have managed somehow to resist this kind of evolution, which so far has been limited to Germany, Sweden, and a number of other Nordic European countries. But I think it could and it should become uh, the norm in, in, the, in, the, in the future. We, generally speaking, one of the themes of my book, Capital and Ideology, is that if you look at the evolution of inequality over time, you see very deep transformation, and you see in the long run an evolution toward more equality, in particular through education, broader access to education, and also to other fundamental goods, including health, which we see today how, how important it is. Uh, and we also see, over time, you know, over the, over the course of the 20th century, uh, a process by, whereby you, we tend to rebalance you know, the rights of property owners with the rights of workers, the rights of consumers, the rights of local government. And I think this desacralization of property is very important and has actually played a very important role in the very process of economic development and economic growth. And I think historically, you know, economic prosperity has come from uh, educational investment, from a reduction of inequality, and, and the view that, you know, we should always be in the pursuit of more and more uh, concentration of wealth and economic power at the very top, and that, you know, if only one individual or 10 individuals had all the power, then we will have a lot more prosperity. You know, I think this view just does not stand scrutiny if you look at, at different historical societies. And that's, you know, my book is primarily a book of history. You know, I provide a lot of historical evidence comparing various societies around the world, you know, including India, China, Russia, Brazil, and, and of course, Western Europe, North America, Japan, and comparing all these different periods and all these different societies, really, you know, prosperity comes from equality and education and, and not from the pursuit of, of more and more inequality. So that's the basic idea of participatory socialism is to use the good things about private property and, and, and market forces, but to put them in the service of a much more uh, equal and much more equitable uh, development uh, model and economic system. Okay, th that's interesting. I think we'll come back to that theme in this conversation. Um, you do in your book as well, uh, looking at that again, have a chapter on India in particular, including a sort of historical uh, look back at col colonialism. Uh, and my, my question to you is, do you think India has the balance of power between competing social groups that will allow the sort of radical change that it needs to truly tackle uh, institutionalized inequality that it faces today? Well, you know, first, as you know better than me, you know, there are huge variations across India and, you know, in, in, in some states of India, you know, there's been a much bigger effort at, uh, you know, making social investment and reducing inequality, you know, if you, you know, Kerala is in a different situation from uh, uh, Maharashtra or Punjab or, or West Bengal, so there's, of course, a lot of variation. But if we look at India in, in general, 
uh, you know, it, there's never been really a social revolution in, in, in India. Well, there's, you know, there's been a strong independence movement and there's been a strong attempt uh, by uh, post-independence government to try to confront uh, a huge legacy in terms of inequality coming both from uh, the, the ancient uh, social system uh, of, of India and also from the colonial time, which contributed to rigidify in many ways uh, boundaries between social categories and caste, which, you know, it's, it's very difficult to say how the entire system would have evolved since the 18th and early 19th century without British colonialism, which sort of put people into boxes for, for, uh, for, uh, for uh, almost a century with the British colonial censuses and distributing rights and duties depending on in which box you are. And so, you know, post-independence Indian government have tried to confront this in particular through uh, quotas and reservation. And in my book, my book, I argue that, they, you know, they've had some success in the sense that if you look at the evolution of inequality between lower caste Indians and the rest of society, you know, it's still very large, of course, but it has reduced over time and it has reduced over time a little more than, than the gap, for instance, between African-American and the rest of U.S. society. So this doesn't mean that this is perfect, but, you know, I... Before giving lessons to India, I think uh, the rest of the world would be well advised also to look at, you know, inequality in the U.S., inequality in Western Europe. And, you know, I think post-independence Indian government have tried to confront a huge legacy of inequality. That being said, uh, you know, the, the, all the efforts that have been put in, in setting up uh, you know, this, this system of quotas and reservations sometimes, you know, have come at the expense of the fact that there, there has been insufficient uh, uh, economic reform regarding uh, land reform, uh, redistribution of property, um, uh, investment in basic uh, schooling facilities and basic uh, health uh, infrastructure. And, you know, sometimes, you know, to, to some extent, quotas and reservations you know, were used maybe, you know, not, not implicitly or not explicitly, but maybe implicitly as an excuse sometimes for part of the Indian elite, you know, not to put the, the resources and, and the tax revenue necessary in order to fund a broad-based um, uh, health and education system. And when, when you compare uh, with China, for instance, you know, it's clear that, you know, one of the reasons for the, for the higher economic growth and higher economic prosperity of China is that, uh, you know, despite all the limitation of the Chinese political system, of course, uh, uh, there's been more resources invested in public infrastructure, in basic education and health facilities over the, the past three or four decades. And, and, you know, this is something that, you know, India has to, to come to terms with, with its problem of inequality. Uh, and, you know, as, as, you, as you said, you know, this very often in history requires big mobilization and in a society where you have a very large level of, of uh, inequality coming from, from, uh, from historical legacy, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's difficult to have this mobilization. But at the same time, you know, you see lots of examples of, of countries uh, where, you know, people thought they, they would never become uh, more equal and, and were very unequal countries. And, and I tell lots of stories like this in my, in my book showing that this can actually change uh, fairly, fairly quickly. You know, I tell the story of Sweden 
in my book, which many people today view as very a very equal country, and and some, sometimes some people assume it's due to their culture. You know, the culture of, of Sweden will be prone to equality, and the culture of India will be prone to inequality. But I don't think there's anything like a permanent deterministic culture or, or anything like this that will make a country uh, equal or unequal forever. And in the case of Sweden, it's very striking to see that, in fact, Sweden used to be one of the most unequal countries in Europe, if not in the world. You know, until 1911, you had a system of uh, political rights and voting rights that were fully proportional to your wealth, so you could have up to 100 voting rights in Parliament for the very high wealth taxpayer, as opposed to one vote if you are just at the beginning of the top 20% roughly of the of the wealth distribution, and if you are below the top 20, you don't even vote. But but within the top 20%, you have this graduated system of voting rights, and even in municipal election, until 1911, so it's you know pretty pretty far in the day. In municipal elections, there was no upper limit in in the number of voting rights that a rich Swede will get, and so you had several dozen Swedish municipalities where uh, uh, only one individual had more 50% of voting rights, and even corporations, you know, had the right to vote in municipal election uh, in in Sweden until 1911. So as you see, you know, this goes pretty far in the direction of a sacralization of property rights. And if someone had told Swedes in 1910, you know, you're going to become a, a very equal country, you know, nobody could have believed it. And then what happened is that there was a big mobilization indeed, from the, the, the trade union, from the workers, from the Social Democratic Party, which uh, imposed universal suffrage uh, in the in 1920s, uh, uh, took power, win, won the election in 1932, remained in power for a num large number of decades, basically until the 1980s, 1990s, and put in place a completely different system, where actually they used the state capacity that was built in Sweden for in the previous decade, but they used it for a completely different political objective. So, you know, they, they, you had the state capacity of Sweden with a registration of income and wealth, and, and instead of distributing voting rights in proportion to this attribute, they, they designed a very progressive tax system in order to make you pay in relation to these attributes, and design system of public education, public health, like nobody had seen in history uh, uh, before. And, and you know, I think, I'm, of course, every country has its own kind of mobilization and history, but in, in India, you also have lots of grassroots movements, you know, including uh, lower caste parties and, uh, you know, large number of socialist parties, other kind of parties, and, you know, all... You know, I think many different things can, can happen. You know, history is full of surprise, and, uh, and, and crises like this one are sometimes also opportunities, you know, from which uh, uh, big change uh, can, um, can happen. But in, in, in any case, you know, the big lesson from my book and from the analysis of India, Sweden, or, you know, all other countries in the world is that there's no deterministic force uh, that makes a country uh, equal or unequal uh, forever. Okay, that's really interesting. You had many ideas packed in there, and I would like to unpack a few of them. Uh, I have a background in political science myself, so I was interested to see that 
your idea actually quite core to your book of uh, ideologies and how it is the deliberation and consultation over and discussion these ideas that things change institutions themselves change even a balance of power can change and to me uh, that it stood a little bit apart from other uh, treatises for example Barrington Moore who talked about the social origins of dictatorship and democracy where you see the final sort of economic outcome as a function of uh, you know redistributive conflict uh, or distributive conflict rather over resource allocation and yes of course property rights is part of that although it's not static property rights themselves are seen as you know contested rights and uh, it is part of how resources get allocated uh, and that in turn is all stands upon the bedrock of the balance of political power which varies enormously from state to state, from country to country. Uh, so do you see this more collaborative or deliberative approach as different entirely from one based on redistributive conflict? Or do you see them as sort of both being two pillars that together determine how resource allocation happens over the long arc of history? Well, I, I think they, they are both, you know, both logic are at work, you know, you, you have a you, you know, you have a conflict uh, between between different interests, different groups. But I also want to stress, you know, the, the dimension of learning, deliberation, uh, intellectual dimension, ideological dimension. Because you know, I really want to stress uh, first that you know the pure class conflict, the pure conflict of interest, in itself, does not determine a unique outcome in terms of institution, in terms of policy, in terms of legal system. And your class position, you know, although it, it is very important, you know, does not fully determine your view of the world about how the property system should be organized, how the tax system should be organized, how the educational system, how the system of frontier should be organized, you know, what kind of relation should you have with other countries, you know, what does it mean to be one country, another country, what, what's the community of reference to which you uh, uh, refer to, and, and that's, you know, this sort of international and transnational dimension of inequality regime is very important in, in, my, in my book. And so the pure sort of class conflict view of the world, you know, sort of does not really allow for this rich set of ideologies, you know, to to uh, to to play their full role. So, in in my you know, I, I in my conclusion of my book, you know, I, I sort of talk about uh, Marx and the you know the history as a, as a class conflict, and I, I I conclude that you know we should view history more as a conflict of ideology and as a process also of of learning about justice. So you know the difference. I'm not being naive, you know, I, I fully agree that, you know, a, a class conflict is very important and, and violence in history, you know, plays a very important role in all of this transition. But at the same time, you know, I think emphasizing the, the ideological dimension and the intellectual dimension uh, behind class conflict is, is very important because the key difference is that, of course, with, with uh, if you give a bigger role for ideas and intellectual transformation, it also means that uh, uh, well, democracy has a role to play. That indeed you have also a theory of uh, uh, elections and deliberation, and, and you should pay a lot of attention, of course, to how this is organized, how you, you fund the political parties, medias, everything is going to be important. But you, you need some you, you, some uh, exchange between groups, and and uh, and you know I think it's it's very important. You know I, I, you know one of the big. Uh, 
reason for the for the for the the, the, the communist uh, tragedy uh, in the in the 20th century was of course this lack of attention to democracy to say the least and and but also the lack of attention for how the property system and the economic system at large will be organized uh, you know once you have abolished you know whatever you don't like and and i think you know given the the magnitude of the catastrophe that happened after that and and which is still of huge importance today you know i think one of the reasons i think for rising inequality since the 1980s 1990s has has been you know the fact that the collapse of communism has has contributed to a sort of a general disillusion about the possibility of another economic system so this also implies that today we need to be very careful, of course, if we want to think about a different economic system, which, which many more and more people believe that we need in order to overcome global warming and to face uh, uh, challenges of rising inequality. But we have to be very careful about uh, uh, its foundation, its institutional underpinnings, and, and, and you know, try to see how people uh, and various social groups in histories uh, can actually learn from experience because I think there is a process of learning over time. You know, it's not just uh, you know anything can happen anytime. And the, the the story I tell in my book is a is, is a story where there is a long run trend where uh, there's a reduction of inequalities, there's a rebalancing of rights and an opening of rights. Uh, 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 not only for property owners, but also for other, other actors in society, uh, uh, workers, uh, consumers, and 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 that's uh, and I think this process is is uh, is uh, you know could and should uh, and and I think probably will continue in the in the longer run. Okay, and just to wrap up quickly with my last question, uh, do you think that what you spoke about, uh, you know, transitioning from one system to another or shocks maybe like uh, world wars or pandemics forcing change and also the disappointment with the previous uh, Bretton Woods uh, globalization system and its institutions, do you think that change was already happening and the pandemic has just uh, sort of well, interrupted it in a sense. Uh, we have seen the tendency towards nationalism, populism, protectionism, nativism across many countries. And while one should not generalize, because each country is also different in its own, uh, do you think that that was almost becoming what some people saw as the answer to the disappointment with the Bre Bretton Woods institutions? And now this pandemic might either exacerbate that change or uh, kind of uh, turn it back. Well. You know, first of all, different things can happen. You know, we, 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 what I look at in historical, past historical episodes is, is really a multiplicity of trajectories. So you have turning points like today, but then different trajectories can be taken. And, and, you know, I think today we are at one of these turning points and there is a risk. That, that the pandemic reinforces pre-existing trend on, on nationalism and return to the frontier of the nation state, return to uh, identity. But I think, uh, you know, first, this will not last forever because in the end, nationalism is not going to solve the big uh, challenges of the day, you know, global warming, inequality, uh, public health problem like the one we have today. You know, it's, it's, it will require cooperation, it will require 
some form of internationalism. And, you know, even in the short run, I think, you know, nationalism will not necessarily win the day if, you know, something else is, is being promoted and is being proposed by uh, other uh, political uh, actors. You know, I think the problem is that in the past three or four decades or you know, even starting with the Bretton Woods system, as you said, but this has reinforced uh, in the 1980s, 1990s, with the rise of, of neoliberalism. We have organized uh, globalism and internationalism and the, you know, the in organization of the international economy in a way that, that has been very beneficial for the, the, the highest uh, wealth and highest human capital individuals, but that, that is sort of forgetting any kind of, of social objective and redistributive objective. And so I think we have to rebuild uh, internationalism in, in a different manner, you know, which means that, for instance, you cannot uh, trade or you cannot have free capital flow between any two countries if at the same time you don't have some common regulation and some common uh, taxation of uh, the, the most uh, uh, powerful economic actors, uh, if you don't have some, some system of targets about carbon emissions and you know taxing those who don't respect uh, these targets, if you don't have social rules about minimum wages. And, you know, the, the problem is that many people today are still very attached to the ideology of, you know, zero uh, tariff, zero tax on capital flow and flow of goods and services, which, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying we should tax them at 100%, of course, but zero is, is really uh, very small, especially if you have no condition in terms of fiscal dumping, in terms of uh, social objective, in terms of carbon emission. So, I, I, you know, I, there's something really contradictory here because when you, when you have very long distance travel for certain commodities, at the very least, you know, you should take into account the extra uh, carbon emission coming from this travel. Um, uh, and, and I think we should, you know, you should also take into account is, uh, are the, you know, the other countries and your other trading partners uh, cooperating in, in terms of setting up an equitable uh, tax system in order to tax the largest uh, uh, companies and, and multinational corporations. So you know, for, you know, if you take an example, if you if you if I am a, I, if I as a country, I, I think we should tax corporate profits at thirty percent. And if my neighbor or you know any other country wants to tax uh, corporate profits at zero percent, okay, they can do that. But then if they want to export goods and services to my country, you know, what I can do is I, I could say, well, look, you know, you have, your companies have a tax deficit as compared to my companies and they should pay this 30% uh, corporate tax rate. So now when you're going to export goods and services to me, I will charge, you know, the, the corresponding tax on your export. Now, it's very different from the standard kind of protectionism because if your neighbor increases their corporate tax rate to, say, 30%, then the, 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 this extra tax, uh, the, the tariff will disappear entirely. So it's, it's, the purpose is not, uh, you know, protectionism as such, but rather to try to induce other countries to move in the direction that correspond to our uh, uh, general uh, uh, social objective and our general development model. And if we don't move 
in that kind of direction, then I think, you know, nationalism will win the day because, you know, at least it proposed to, to break with the current system of globalization with no f sort of regulation of any kind and, and which people are not really convinced with anymore. So, you know, it all depends, on, again, on what's the complete set of alternatives that is being proposed to people. If we have business as usual, neoliberalism versus nationalism, then nationalism will win the day. But if we have some new kind of internationalism based on more equality, a more equitable development model, and the kind of participatory socialism that I promote in my book, then I think the, the debate and the public discussion can, will be um, uh, more complicated, and, and I don't think nationalism will prevail, at least in the, in the longer run. Okay, Professor Piketty, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. We'll wrap up here. This is another episode of the In Focus podcast at The Hindu, uh, looking at the coronavirus, but also at much more than that. Uh, once again, my guest for today, Professor Thomas Piketty, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.